The gender pay gap has been widely discussed and steps are being taken to remedy situations where there have been persistent and glaring inequality between paying men and women of equal experience for doing the same role. However, companies are now starting to explore their pay gap detail uh, in more granular detail. And they found there are also inequities between ethnicity with black and ethnic minority workers often being paid less than their white counterparts. This obviously leads to growing financial disparity, not just between the genders, but also between BAME and white people in the UK in terms of pay, in terms of how much they can save, where they can afford to buy and rent, and ultimately in their pensions. Worse affected are black women. National poverty charity Turn to Us points out black women are more likely to struggle financially in terms of employment, savings, and therefore retirement. Moreover, Turn to Us found workers from black and ethnic minority groups are more likely to experience financial hardship as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Some 58% of BAME workers have had their employment affected since the start of the pandemic, compared to 47% of white workers. But again, women across all ethnicities have been disproportionately affected compared to men. 52% of women have seen their employment affected, compared to 45% of men. But this includes 70% of female Asian workers, 55% of black women, and 51% of white women who've reported a loss in income or change to their situation. So given this, how can the financial services industry work to help to reduce the savings and wealth gap between the genders and between ethnicities? How can we encourage more black women to seek advice and impartial financial guidance? And how can the finance industry improve career opportunities for BAME candidates, particularly women? Here to discuss these issues are Davinia Tomlinson, founder of RainCheck, Thomas Lawson, Chief Executive of Turn to Us, and Emma Hughes, Communications Director for the Chartered Insurance Institute and the Personal Finance Society. Let's talk first about the situation regarding BAME finances. The turn to us research has been startling, but why are these figures so bleak? Thomas, this is uh, your research. Can I start with you, please? Sure, good morning. Um, I think what's playing out here is that we have structural uh, inequalities throughout both the social security system and the employment market that uh, present unfair barriers to women and to people of color, to black women and to Asian women. Um, and you can't deal with gender inequality by only paying attention to gender. The intersectional nature of gender and race and the way in which they lay over each other are, are the problem. Binna Candola, who is a race expert uh, looking at the racism at work, he did an analysis of the BBC gender pay gap and he broke it down by race as well. And what he found was that the best paid people were white men, the second best paid people were white women, the third black men and the fourth black women. So if you only addressed gender disparities in that, in that, at the BBC, you still would have women being paid worse because you hadn't paid attention to race. So we need to, both in the employment market and in the social security system, pay much more attention to that. And the best way to do that is not only to look at the data, which you know, we've presented here, but also to involve people of color and women in designing systems that work better rather than doing it to and for them. Absolutely. Davinia, um, can I bring you in here as well? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I think there's some really good points made by Thomas there, particularly when it comes to um, the inclusion and involvement of the people that some of these um, initiatives and um, you know, well-meaning incentives are designed to ultimately address and to target. I think it's, it's really important to make sure that we have a seat at the table and we have a voice 
in designing programmes that are ultimately for our um, overall good. I mean, when we think about um, the ethnicity pay gap um, here in the UK, and, and, and one thing that really struck me similarly based on um, the introduction you gave um, around, you know, even the acronym, that term BAME is so loaded um, because, of course, you know, ethnic minorities cannot be considered a monolith. Um, obviously, black women in particular are worst affected and have been worst affected by this pandemic. And so I think, you know, we have to be quite careful in terms of the language that we use when we're re reporting, when we're doing research to really carve out the people that are worst affected and how, you know, how, you know, these insidious um, effects of um, the various systemic and um, institutional imbalances and discriminatory practices effectively um, impact uh, black women. So when we think about obviously income levels um, and the implications of that, you know, this low paid employment for um, housing, the fact that um, black households are, you know, half as likely as white households to, to own homes. And of course, the implications of that for overall wealth accumulation. Um, and even when we think about debt, you know, it's important to think about the racial debt gaps, for example. And again, um, black households disproportionately affected by debt and, and, you know, the longer term lingering implications of that for intergenerational wealth and legacy and your ability to support um, future generations as they come through the ranks and try to uh, improve their prospects, it all has um, a knock-on effect on that. Absolutely. Emma, has the CII PFS got uh, views on this? Um, so um, when we did our Ensuring Women's Futures work, that looked at some of the um, inadvertent effect of recent government policy on different groups. So, for example, automatic enrolment, where basically the, um, the starting level for um, salaries meant that various groups who perhaps were on lower salaries were not included in that at all. So um, one of the things we very we very much have pushed for is the kind of government to consider policy and the effects on different groups. And as Thomas pointed out, it's really having to start with an understanding of where different groups are currently in terms of their mm. savings and assets. And then for every bit of policy that's pushed through, considering what impact would it have on the different groups? Would it achieve um, when they're announcing this will increase pension savings for all? Will it really increase pension savings for all or because of a um, threshold in, uh, for earnings before your employer has to automatically enrol you in a pension? Will it in exclude huge swathes and groups? Absolutely. And, and we've seen lots of research saying that black women are most at risk of having a poorer income in retirement, whether because um, they have adopted caring roles, looking after older parents or looking after children or because they're paid less. Um, but the fact is we need to help secure them a financially secure retirement. Um, Davinia, Raincheck looks to empower women to take control of their finances. What do you think we need to do as an industry to address the disparity and to help women, particularly black women, achieve a secure savings strategy that allows them to have a secure and comfortable income in retirement? There are a few things that I think you know we can do at an industry, an industry level, and as you rightly uh, suggested, this is you know one of my passions. Really, having worked in this industry for such a long time, was always to think about how I could, through my business, find ways to promote that sense of accessibility and inclusion. And I think you know when we talk about you know even pay gap reporting in the UK, and, and as Thomas suggested, you know when you focus just on gender and you look at um, disparity in pay through the lens of gender alone, um, without 
thinking about the intersectionality between gender and race. You know, I think it's really important to think about in mandatory pay gap reporting and then more importantly than just the reporting, because data is one thing. But I think thinking about what action you might take as a result of the findings of reporting is really important. Um, so looking to close any gaps um, immediately and, and looking at those companies that are on the forefront of um, making some of those changes, I think will be really key. I think the second thing is to think about access to financial education. And um, we've seen in recent years, you know, a massive um, shift and real momentum gathering sparked by our, um, our US counterparts, but certainly it's really catching on in the UK. But thinking about how we can reach people wherever they are and communicate in a way that's accessible to them. So this is not about the financial services industry um, kind of lording it over people and using language that's inaccessible mm -hmm. and jargon -ridden. but instead thinking about how we can communicate in plain English not just for the, the benefit of black women or black people but just for all because you know that the more people have a grasp of their finances the better ultimately for society mm -hmm. um, and I guess my, my final you know my final thought is really thinking about the provision of financial advice because I think you know, traditionally and historically, financial advice has really been viewed as the preserve of high net worths, the wealthy, um, and certainly not something um, for ethnic minorities, irrespective of their income level. And I guess that barrier that's been put up around the industry, rightly or wrongly, you know, in mm. terms of perception, um, really has meant that the people that perhaps most need access to to professional guidance, advice and support are not receiving it. So, you know, arguably, if you're on a lower income, you perhaps need access to financial advice even more so mm. than people who already have a good grasp on their finances and know how to accumulate wealth and so thinking about how we can democratize access to financial advice I think is really powerful and will be a really a real game changer in, in helping to level this playing field. Absolutely Emma I can see you nodding very much in agreement with what Davinia is saying can I bring you in here? Well, one of the things the Personal Finance Society has called for is a financial advice market review too because obviously the original financial advice market review was looking at increasing access to advice. But a lot of that work focused on robo-advice. But when people um, have financial concerns, they really want to be sat with a human finance, not necessarily sat, but perhaps on screen as they are at the moment, but to talk through their concerns, their fears, their hopes with a human financial advisor and to come out with a plan. So that is something that's very much on our agenda that it needs another it needs basically government and regulatory involvement again to look at where are we now in terms of access to advice and um, basically increasing availability and access to it. Indeed, Thomas uh, turned to us as often at the front line when it comes to helping people get through their debts and understand where their financial situation is sort of going wrong and helping them get on the right foot. What's your view? What does financial services need to do, particularly to help women? Of course, the importance of really good financial advice and high quality information about how to manage debts is critical. But that the absence of that is not what causes people to get into debt. Uh, what causes people to get into debt is not enough money to live on. Universal credit was designed in order to be an uncomfortable amount of money to live on to encourage people to get back to work. This this week we've had figures of 750,000 people being made unemployed uh, and there aren't new jobs coming around. So there's going to be a huge number of people really badly struggling on universal credit. And because we know that employment practices are structurally sexist and racist, Black women are going to be more more affected in, in terms of unemployment. So a bunch of things. One is 
people need enough money to live on and that includes universal credit. So we need to fix universal credit and get rid of the five week waiting list. We need to uprate benefits such as housing benefit that haven't been increased with inflation. And we need to get rid of no recourse to public funds that disproportionately affects uh, black and Asian women and, uh, and their families. Um, yes, so my main point is financial advice really critical uh, and that um, and, and we must have really high quality of financial advice that is entirely accessible to different groups of people but actually what people need is more money um, and that means you know paying attention to the sectors that aren't paying well enough where black women are overrepresented for example social care and we have relied on social care and over the coronavirus epidemic um, so, so so enough money as well as a high quality advice so Thomas, I'm going to come back to you on this and uh, bring in Davinia and Emma as well, or you, you guys can just chip in. But this is also pointing to a pernicious and ongoing policy drive to keep these workers who are highly skilled, but to keep them lowly paid. And, you know, you, you saw the cheering in Parliament when they denied NHS workers a pay rise, but they all gave themselves a pay rise. Um, things like this lead to a lot of public anger, but what can the financial services industry do? What can we all do to help drive these really important policy changes? I mean, you're absolutely right about universal credit and just even going through the forms is a, is a trial. What can we do as an industry to, to drive this policy change? What sort of thinking is needed? Perhaps the first thing that needs to happen is better representation of black women at the senior levels of financial services organisations. Um, and that will involve uh, much better recruitment practices to recruit for potential, not for perfection. If you recruit for perfection, you're going to end up with a bunch of people who look like me, who are white, male, middle class. Um, and as long as people, are, particularly in the financial services industry, as long as they are dramatically overrepresented by people who look and sound like me, the interests of people who don't look like me will never be protected. Uh, and the financial services industry is incredibly influential uh, in government. Um, government likes listening to it because there's a lot of money there. So if, if you had much better representation there, that would go a significant way for improving a wide range of uh, policies for black women across the country. Excellent. Davinia, can I bring you in here, please? Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And actually, I mean, just to go a step further than what Thomas said, when it comes to thinking about um, representation and visibility, um, you know, when we think about upward mobility in general and, you know, that that there's so much investment made within this industry for as part of, you know, various CSR initiatives and there are school mentoring programmes and things of this nature and kind of going mm. out into quite often um, socially disadvantaged communities and um, seeking to provide I guess mentorship and, and support services but you don't necessarily see that translating into changes in recruitment policy or in the pipeline mm. of candidates that are coming through so that visibility is really important and it's not so much about recruiting for perfection because ultimately even the white men that are recruited they're not the model of perfection it's about <laughs> recruiting in your own image and so it's so important to make sure that you have a, a diverse you know, collection of people that can make decisions about policy, about product development, um, and about you know, those recruitment decisions that will ultimately mean that you're casting your net farther than just um, mm. the top 10 universities in the country, for example. If you're ultimately only recruiting people that look and sound like you, you're never gonna get that diversity of thought, which we know, you know research has pointed to the fact that this improves 
commercial outcomes. Mm-hmm. So if we're, you know, if that's the bottom line, if we're thinking solely about um, a quantifiable number, what the profit margins might be, the idea of groupthink is so outdated, but ultimately mm-hmm. it's harmful to business prospects. Mm-hmm. Um, so I couldn't agree more with Thomas there. Yeah, I absolutely completely agree. We've got to get away from this groupthink um, mentality and we've got to stop hiring people that look like us. We've got to um, cast our net much further. Um, Emma, can I bring you in here? Because I know the CII and PFS has been working very hard to try and promote diversity and inclusion at all stages in uh, marketing and recruitment um, particularly. Could could you talk a little bit about your initiatives and uh, how you want your members to um, take these forward? I think, um, you know, as um, Thomas and and what was it pointed out, it's something that the profession is aware of. But a lot of the studies are only in recent years. So, um, for example, there's a study of the asset management industry that found out of 100,000 employees, only 10 percent identified as Asian and only one percent as black. Um, And the diversity project report found that only 13 black portfolio managers were in the UK today. So it's clearly a, a big issue. Um, back in 2018, for the insurance profession, the Association of British Insurers found that while gen- there was a gender balance across the whole profession, four out of five executive and board roles were held by uh, men, and only 16% of employees came from Black, Asian and ethnic minority backgrounds. So that's very much kind of, there's an awareness of the issue, and there's also an awareness, as Davinia pointed out, that if you don't represent the wider um, public that you're serving, then the public do not feel comfortable engaging with you. So it's a, it's a business critical thing that businesses are addressing. Um, the profession has done a lot and has shifted from awareness into action. So we've seen some great examples of work that's going on um, among um, the profession. So for example, Employee networks have been set up that focus on um, age, gender balance, race, ethnicity, caring, disability and sexual orientation and talking to employees currently within organisations to say to find out what they find are the barriers. And then that can translating into action to remove those barriers. And there's been some great results from some of those um, bits of work. Um, Aviva, Royal London both have those sorts of groups. Um, there's also been, as well as creating those kind of safe spaces where people can share their experience of being in the profession at the moment, um, there's also a real understanding that you need to un- address unconscious bias within an organisation. So, for example, both the CII and Vitality have learning and development programmes where staff um, have training on unconscious bias. There's also approaches to recruitment. So making sure, um, are you, what was it? removing um, references to universities, names, et cetera, in initial recruitment stages to make sure levels of unconscious bias don't come in at that stage. Um, also, I suppose the, the important, a lot of organisations are recognised the importance of bringing in external agencies because it's not about just you looking at, it's about external scrutiny what are these um, actions that you're taking? Are they actually delivering positive results? So, for example, Zurich recently announced it was working with the Behavioural Insights team, which is part owned by the Cabinet Office, to identify the causes of their gender and ethnicity pay gap and agree ways to reduce it. But I think what's been very positive in the profession is you've seen in recent years awareness shift to action, but also 
most importantly, the recognition that it isn't just action and then, right, we've taken that action. It's about monitoring it and then reviewing it and seeing what more needs to be done because it is a journey and it's not going to be solved at the click of a pair of fingers. Exactly. But I, I really want to come back to a point Davinia made much earlier on when she said black women have to have a seat at the table. Um, why are there not more black women who are given non-executive directorships at their companies? Why are they not invited to be trustees or said, look, we, we really want to hear your voice as a trustee? because these are the people that help to shape the direction of a company. And if a company is not reflecting the needs of its potential customer base um, through its own staff, through its own board, then it's just, it's not even gonna be a sustainable company. 20, 30 years down the line, that company is going to disappear. So it's in their own interests, as well as in the interests of their wider community to, to put voices on the board. Um, Davinia, can I come back to you on this one? Because uh, you, you mentioned it earlier and it really resonated with me. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, something Emma um, has just touched on with regard to um, thinking about the recruitment agencies the industry are using. And, you know, when you think about how those non-exec director positions are quite often filled, I mean, I sit on a board and so I have, um, you know, some understanding of when you are looking to recruit uh, future trustees, of course, you start with your your initial sphere of influence, your peer group. Um, and so you'll think about who might be the potential uh, best candidates for that role and of course there'll be you know a, a very transparent process of selection recruitment and interviewing but I think if your start point is always the people that you are most familiar with that surround you then ultimately it just perpetuates this idea of the old boys network or even um, just recruiting people from your old college at university or whatever it might be and that's one of the ways that it just continues this um, this cycle of only recruiting in your own image so I think thinking about which recruitment agencies are we using and do they have a specific focus on um, making sure that they have a wide pool of, of candidates to present to you so that the shortlist doesn't look um, so so white, basically. Um, and I think it's really important, exactly as, as Emma outlined, it's not just about doing the work and saying, yes, we've recruited an agency that focuses on diversity and inclusion, because, you know, DNI initiatives is like a blooming industry and, and particularly off the back of um, the recent upsurge in Black Lives Matter again. We've seen lots of those roles, lots of companies clamoring to fill their kinds of heads of diversity and inclusion positions. But it's not just about having a black woman in your DNI function in your organization to say, yes, we've ticked that box. It's about saying, okay, we might have a black woman as our head of diversity and inclusion, but what does the rest of the organization look like? How can we really make sure that this inclusion um, seeps throughout the, the organization and becomes part of the DNA of the company as well? Excellent. You, you've really raised a brilliant point there because um, we can reach out as a financial services industry to um, schools to colleges not just you know the traditional Oxford uh, Cambridge but we can reach out across schools across colleges and get in apprenticeships from across the gender from across the ethnicity divide and um, I really would love to see this kickstart scheme that's been uh, touted by the government I'd love to see this bring in um, more diverse candidates, more black men, more black women into the financial services at apprenticeship level so you can get the training and the skills they need to become financial services professionals. Um, Thomas, does, does Turn to Us have any view on Kickstart? I know it's very, very new and it hasn't really been trialled yet, but uh, what would you think? Um, 
So I think often in recessions, young people, you know, tend to get the worst outcomes. So I, I would generally say this is this is a welcome intervention. Um, I think one of the problems with uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives in companies is that often they focus on diversity uh, and diversity only. And and sometimes when you increase the diversity of a company or a charity or a statutory organization, you can begin to relax when it looks a bit more mixed. But if you pay attention to who's got which roles, often you're going to discover that the senior team and the outward facing roles that tend to be filled by white people um, and the more service in the roles, you know, servicing the inside of the organization can often be filled by black and Asian people and mixed race people. That's not helpful. So it's not enough to tackle diversity. You've also got to tackle inclusion. Uh, and how do you create an environment in the organization where everyone can be psychologically safe, bring their best selves to work, uh, be really given fair opportunities for growth throughout that company. Um, I often analogize this to, uh, we know we can go on diets and learn that sugar and carbs and fats are bad for us, but knowing that isn't enough. So subconscious or unconscious bias training is helpful. It, it tells us what, we, what, what, what our minds are capable of, but we really need action. And as Emma was saying, you need action and you need reviewing. Uh, so you've got to have uh, race pay gap analyses alongside the gender ones. You've got to have targets that you are reviewing constantly and you've got to be working out what's working, what's not working, and you've got to hold yourselves to account. Um, so it's a, it's, an, it's a welcome move, but it would be a disaster if it only meant that uh, people of colour were stuck at, stuck at the bottom of the organisation on internal service roles. Excellent. Um, Emma, I can see you nodding there. I'll ask Emma and then turn to Davinia. And I think we might have to make this our last question, sadly. But anyway, Emma? <laughs> I, I, what was that? I totally agree. It's not. It's basically about a change across the whole culture of the organisation. It's not about one end or the other. And it's not about just non-executive board roles. It's making sure people um, from all backgrounds can rise to the top of an organisation. Yeah. I think what well, we haven't mentioned um, coronavirus, but um, what, one of that, my, our great concerns is obviously the impact of what's going on now in the world mm -hmm. might have in terms of increasing the inequality that existed before this pandemic. So, um, for example, um, the University of Sussex um, research has found one of the biggest problems that has stopped kind of career progression in women is the fact a lot of caring responsibility, not just paid caring but unpaid caring has fallen on women in the past. Hmm. Um, and the University of Sussex research, um, where they quizzed 2,000 parents back in March, found that before coronavirus, 27% of women took on the bulk of childcare and caring for relatives. During this crisis, 45% of mothers have, and that's going to, you know, and that's whether they've take, had to take unpaid leave, they opted for furlough during this period and therefore a salary cut but it is potentially going to even more widen um, the disparity in career progression for women. So are we going back to the 1950s? No because in the 1950s um, the traditional household was um, you were married, you were married for life, he would have had a final salary pension um, so ironically, um, as a generation, both um, our generation and my daughter's generation will be far more financially independent than my mother's and grandmother's generation. But we're also probably set to be worse off um, because um, essentially um, there's not enough action to make sure that caring is rewarded in society. So one of the things that we're 
trying to do um, is make sure that that is no longer the case. So, for example, our insuring futures work, the next stage of that is going to look at making sure that people aren't worse off as a result of their caring decisions throughout their mm. lives. So because it would be a tragedy if um, mm. coronavirus it comes out that people who've taken on caring are worse off as a result and aren't able to afford their own long-term care, um, which is a very worrying um, reality that faces many people. So I think it's vital, not just in terms of organisations, but again, going back to what you started with, Simony, which is how do we engage groups? How do we make sure that people aren't, that disparity is reduced moving forwards? I think um, our work's going to look at how we design financial services products and communications to make sure that they resonate with the way that people are living their lives. Mm. Um, you know, how can professionals structure conversations to make sure they're relevant to the risks and aims that they face as individuals? And also, how can advisors give advice to the client's whole family? Because if you want engagement, it's usually not just about you, it's about your wider situation. Um, so, and to make sure that as you grow older, your plans become entwined with the needs of your family. Um, because to create engagement, to make sure that financial disparity between different groups is reduced and inequality is addressed, it's important that you know, we increase the way we engage with individuals. So we're hoping financial advisors and insurance professionals will really get involved with the next stage of insuring futures and come up with ways to make sure that um, people who care can afford their own later life care. Because it's in, I think, the important bit for everybody to recognise is this isn't about inequality for one group. All of society benefits if we remove inequal financial inequality. And that's why this work is so important. Mm. Absolutely. Davinia, can I can I come to you and, and um, end with you? I'd really love to hear from you what you and your clients um, would like to see from financial services to not just reduce the disparity, but eradicate it completely. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, we've, we've covered so much in terms of what the industry should be doing. And the one thing that strikes me, having um, spoken on the racial wealth gap and, and various aspects of inequality in the past, are that none of these none of these ideas or none of the suggestions that we posited are new or particularly innovative or groundbreaking or revolutionary and I think you know having come you know when you have a background having worked this industry for such a long time and recognizing all of the expertise all of the talent and the intellect within this industry um, I mean quite frankly it's crazy to me that we would still be having this conversation today um, we have the, the collective brain capacity to topple this problem and so I think where we are at this point is that we have to get radical and that we have to become um, focused on okay we're not going to sit around and um, theorize and strategize about this because you know we like our we do like the, you know blue sky thinking and we like to have our strategy discussions and our breakout sessions and all of this what we really require is we're not going to have any more of those sessions we are just going to take decisive action and that will be led from the top down and when we look around the, the, the leadership table um, every week or every month or every quarter and we see the same faces looking back at us, we need to start to ask some of those difficult questions of one another. Is this the most diverse? Is this the best possible selection of people sitting at this table to lead um, this company into the next phase in our growth journey? But more importantly, to help to, to promote that sense of inclusion that Emma alluded to with regard to the, the, the greater good for society, which benefits us all. Um, and that will require us to make some very 
uncomfortable decisions because it will involve us having to, uh, in some cases, remove ourselves from positions that we've kind of sat in for such a long time and we've been very comfortable in those positions. Um, we've never really had to challenge ourselves. Absolutely. So what is required now is for us to say, okay, if we're looking at a pipeline of candidates to fill this role, if the shortlist does not look diverse enough, then we need to keep recasting that net until it is. And if we don't have the expertise internally um, to ensure that we are, we are getting a wide enough selection of outstanding black candidates, because this isn't about, and, and I think sometimes this message gets lost in translation in the diversity debate. This is not about dumbing down or trying to reduce standards in the interests of bringing in black people, because I think, you know, for black people, it does us a disservice. And also it's quite insulting to feel like you're mm. being included on the basis of, you know, filling a quota. This is about recognising the excellence that exists in a vast mm. array of ethnicities taking the best of those ethnicities and, and giving everybody a fair opportunity um and so i think you know anything that we can do to promote that which will as i say in, involve some of what i would consider to be radical action because the industry has not yet taken it which will involve saying that role will be filled by a black woman that mm -hmm. role will be filled by an indian man and we're not filling it until that has happened um and i think you know to the extent that the industry can do that and shake itself out of this um uh narcolepsy the better excellent that was a perfect note to end on and sadly we have run out of time but thank you so much um, for taking part in this really fascinating and challenging discussion you're right we don't need to reduce standards we need to improve our standards we need to recognize the best candidate for the role and and that will hopefully as as, as emma and davinia and, and thomas have said that will improve society as a whole and we need to also as financial services professionals keep pushing government to improve its policy making decisions so that it doesn't just so that policy doesn't just favor the rich but favors every single member of society i really hope that we can see very soon more black young people taking up opportunities to forge a career in financial services anyway thank you very much to all my guests davinia emma and thomas and thank you all for listening until next time take care here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.